Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Transatlanticist at the America Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. In this episode, we continue telling the story of the indigenous people of Chicago, Chicago land, and the Great Lakes region. But let me start by recapping what we covered previously. We already met the first Chicagoans who probably arrived in the Chicago area around 12,000 years ago at the end of the Pleistocene period or the Ice Age. At this time, Chicago resembled a snowy tundra. We don't know a lot about these people, but they were probably nomadic and hunted large animals like woolly mammoths and mastodons. As the climate continued to warm after the Ice Age, Native American civilizations transformed, and they began to cultivate crops like corn, beans, and squash. The development of agriculture allowed them to build cities. The great Indian urban center of Cahokia, which is just a couple hundred kilometers south of Chicago, thrived from the 9th through the 13th centuries. At its height, Cahokia had an urban population of 20 to 40,000 people, which is huge. And it acted as a hub of a vast trade network that covered most of North and Central America. Fast forward to the 1670s when the first European explorers and missionaries encountered Chicago. At this time, the Miami tribe had small settlements on the shores of Lake Michigan. This marks the beginning of European native interactions in Chicagoland. It is important to note that Europeans and Native Americans coexisted fairly peacefully in the Chicago area for about 120 years from 1670 to 1790, largely because the early Europeans adapted themselves to the existing native cultural norms, not the other way around. For example, there was no effort by these Europeans to take direct control of Indian land. Also, Europeans relied on Indians for a number of things, such as knowledge of the land and waterways, or technology such as canoes and snowshoes. Another important feature of this peaceful period was the development of the Métis culture. The Métis was a mixed-race caste of people whose mothers were Indian women and whose fathers were French men. They formed an important part of the culture of the early Chicago region. Unfortunately, peaceful relations slowly deteriorated during the end of the 18th century as the newly created government of the United States set its sights on westward expansion. As we know, the U.S. Revolutionary War starts in 1776 and ends in 1783. In 1789, the Constitution is written, and in 1790, it is approved. Practically the first thing the brand new U.S. government does is send in an army to break up a confederacy of Indians who are resisting westward expansion. In 1790, Chicago is still in Indian country. It's far enough west that it is mostly untouched by the U.S. government. It is still an area of freely intermingling European and Native cultures. Indeed, the first non-Native settler of Chicago is a free Black man by the name of Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable, who opens up a trading post in Chicago in 1790. The happy status quo starts changing in the 1790s. In 1795, the U.S. government and Native tribes signed the Treaty of Greenville, which formally cedes six square miles of land at the mouth of the Chicago River to the U.S. government. It is doubtful that any Native people actually living in Chicago were represented at those treaty talks. With the deed to the land secure, the U.S. government builds Fort Dearborn at the mouth of the Chicago River in 1803. At around this time, Indians living in the Ohio Valley between the edge of the United States then and Chicago are beginning to realize that they need to organize and fight if they are to prevent the further westward expansion of the Americans. 
enter Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa. These two are brothers, and they're Shawnee Indians who have already been pushed from their traditional lands. They recognize the dangers posed to Native cultures by the U.S. government, so they assemble different tribes around Prophetstown, which is in today's Indiana, and just east of Chicago. Here, they start to organize defense of the Indian country. However, at the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811, the Indian army of Tenskwatawa is defeated by the U.S. Army. Then in 1812, Britain and the U.S. go to war, which provides an opportunity for Indian tribes to join forces with another European power to defend their land. Tecumseh and other Indian tribes join the British side and they are very successful. First, they capture Detroit and then on the 15th of August, 1812, Potawatomi forces led by Chief Blackbird destroy Fort Dearborn, the U.S. fort in Chicago. However, the end of the War of 1812 proves to be catastrophic for Native Americans because the peace treaty between the U.S. and Britain stipulates a return to the pre-war status quo. For the Indian tribes, this means that they would have no external help in preventing the Americans from expanding westward. In 1818, the U.S. government rebuilds Fort Dearborn and is able to exert its control over the wider region. It is at this point that the city of Chicago slowly begins to resemble the city that we know today. And that's pretty much where our story begins for today's episode, which focuses on the complex relationship between the Native American tribes of Chicagoland and the U.S. government. It's a hugely complicated story, but I'm delighted to have two historians to help us understand the rest of this story. Dr. Ted Karamansky and Dr. John Lowe. Welcome, Ted and John. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Dr. Karamansky is professor of history and director of the public history program at Loyola University in Chicago. He is a lifelong resident of the Chicago area and the author of 10 books on Great Lakes regional history. His publications include the book Blackbird's Song, Andrew J. Blackbird and the Odawa People, published in 2012. Dr. John N. Lowe is an enrolled citizen of the Pokagon Band of the Potawatomi Indians. He is an associate professor in comparative studies at The Ohio State University and director of the Newark Earthworks Center. His teaching, writing, and research interests include Native identities, American Indian religions, urban American Indians, as well as American Indian law and treaty rights. He also serves on his tribe's Traditions and Repatriation Committee and sits on the Board of Trustees of the Chicago History Museum. So, Dr. Lowe, how would you like to continue telling the story of Chicago, which is also the story of your own ancestors? Uh, well, thank you, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Very honored that you uh, invited me. Very pleased to be sitting with Ted, Professor Karamansky, uh, virtually. And I suppose we could start by making a couple of corrections. Please do. From a Pokagon Potawatomi perspective, anyway. The first is uh, that Potawatomi, our elders tell us that we've always been here since the beginning of time in the Chicago area. And, and so that, that length of time and connection to the land is immeasurable. Uh, the origin stories that we have are several, and we're taught that no story is wrong. Any story has truth to it. Every story has truth to it. But our origin stories sometimes place us at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River, at the Atlantic Ocean. But the stories I grew up with placed us our origins as Potawatomi people, either at Lake Michigan near Grand Rapids or Milwaukee uh, at Lake Michigan or Chicago at Lake Michigan. So in teachings I've uh, learned, uh, has, uh, the Chicago area has always been Potawatomi homelands 
shared with uh, many other tribes that traverse back and forth and through it. But it's uh, a claim that we're very proud to make, our connection to this uh, wonderful uh, area. The other correction I wanted to make is that my understanding, and Ted, correct me if if I'm wrong, if you know, I believe uh, Chief Topnaby was, who was a Pokagon, well, not Pokagon, because we weren't called Pokagon then, uh, but he was Potawatomi Chief of the St. Joseph River Valley. And I believe he was the first signatory to the Treaty of Greenville of 1795. And uh, one of the reasons why he would have participated in that is, um, well, these were Potawatomi lands that were being included in this land session. And why would he have agreed to that is a subject of speculation. But I suspect, perhaps, that Chief Tottenby was hoping by giving uh, the United States government this area at the mouth of the Chicago River, he would accomplish two things. He would ensure access to trade goods, uh, which was important for the Potawatomi people. And I think he was always negotiating as many uh, Indian leaders from various tribes at the time were doing, always hoping to find that line where the United States government and settler colonists would be satisfied. And it wasn't at the Ohio River. It wasn't at the Appalachian Mountains. It wasn't at the Treaty of Greenville line across what is now Ohio. But I think he was hoping perhaps this would be enough land and that uh, if we gave them this much, that would be enough. Other than that, thank you for the very kind introduction. I think you make a good point there, John, in, in the degree to which Native people tried time and time again to reach accommodation. Uh, and the treaties were, were seen as opportunities for a new relationship, a new basis for hopefully a harmonious connection with the newcomers. Also, though, would you agree that to one band leader really didn't necessarily have the right to cede a large section of land. They were only saying, I'm in favor of this session, but they really wouldn't have assumed that that was good for everybody else who might have lived or worked through the area. You, you bring up a great point, Ted. I uh, think, for one, certainly we weren't kingdoms or fiefdoms where Chief Tottenby would have been able to have a sole ability to authorize the uh, session of this land. And I think you're exactly right. I think it was something that uh, he thought perhaps was in the best interest of the Potawatomi people. I suspect also he would not have signed this treaty without significant consultation with other Potawatomi community members, tribal, other Potawatomi tribal leaders, other tribal leaders from other tribes, and that it was a consensus that this was out of a very difficult situation, the next best strategy to try. I think that word consensus is particularly important uh, as a tradition in, in Native American political arrangements. And I, I think it's what makes the period after the War of 1812 so difficult for Native communities because they were in some ways in an unprecedented situation with the uh, removal of Brit the British from the political dynamics and the emergence of the Americans in pretty much an overwhelming military posture. And so how do you respond to this uh, was, was had to be a, uh, a contentious issue. I absolutely agree. It was uh, very difficult times for indigenous peoples throughout the uh, Great Lakes region. And uh, having dealt with the French, the French are gone. Having dealt with the British, the British are gone. Now having to deal with the American government. Every time that things hopefully were settled, 
they were rendered in in chaos. And so tribal leaders were constantly trying to navigate through a very complicated and difficult uh, situation. And I believe tried as best they could many times as, as much as they could. But uh, as we know, the expectations of indigenous leaders to have, as Ted, you said, a harmonious relationship. This had been the history of native peoples throughout North America, essentially, certainly in the Great Lakes region, the Midwest, since time immemorial was uh, figuring out ways to have harmonious relationships. And I think they hoped that at some point they would be able to establish those harmonious relationships with the United States government and those settler colonists that were pushing for land. But unfortunately, as we see from history, we weren't able to ever arrive at that, uh, that status of, uh, or situation of uh, harmony. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that made it so difficult is that traditionally people of goodwill would, would come together as individuals. And as you say, they would have tried to build a consensus from their side and then work with the newcomers or work with uh, you know their opposite parties. And I think this was why many Native people wanted to be able to go to Washington, meet the president, shake hands with the president, and know that they were dealing with the ultimate authority. But the American government was so multifaceted with territorial governors and Indian agents, and, and then divided between the power of the Congress to ratify treaties and the president to go ahead and appoint negotiators, that it was it was a situation that could, I, well, not could, did become uh, something that was baffling to many Native leaders and giving them a sense of betrayal. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, these were very destabilized times for uh, indigenous peoples of the Great Lakes. Disease had uh, devastated uh, these communities. Trade had destabilized the political uh, situations in tribes. Trading and traders and access to uh, goods became more important than wisdom or experience or uh, accomplishments as far as Indian leadership. Uh, the effects of missionization, that is uh, pushing of uh, foreign religions onto indigenous peoples, I think also was very uh, confusing and destabilizing. And alcohol, of course, introduction of alcohol further uh, made these times for Indian peoples of the Chicago area very difficult. And I think something like alcohol becomes much more of a problem at this point, because in in the past, say during the French period, the so-called, you know, middle ground era, the there was a limited number of Europeans in Indian country with very limited access points, either coming up from New Orleans or coming down from St. Louis. But now, with in the American situation, they're coming across the Great Lakes, they're coming up the Ohio Valley, uh, their settlements are within, you know, uh, 100 kilometers uh, of, of native villages. And so there's almost a, a flood of these different types of traders. And in the past, where people would have come and established kinship relationships with the native people and become really living in the villages. Now you just got people passing through, trying to use alcohol to make a quick buck. Yeah. And uh, Andrew, you uh, mentioned, you referenced uh, the Métis culture in this era, uh, the uh, particularly French and then later British, and then later Americans that were intermarrying into tribes. Certainly from the Native perspective, uh, from what I've been taught and told, is that we didn't really see uh, Métis as a category. 
when uh, DuSable married uh, Kitty Hawa and became the first non-native resident of uh, Chicago. He wasn't a non-native uh, to the Paduanmi. He'd married into a Paduanmi family, a prominent Paduanmi family. He had been adopted into the Paduanmi. And as far as the Paduanmi were concerned, he was Paduanmi. It's the same for Will Met. Uh, it's the same for many other people that came at first. But the Potawatomi, the other Indians around uh, the Great Lakes, were, were not aware, I suspect, of such things as passage of the Northwest Ordinance in 1787, which outlined very clearly the intention of the United States to wrestle control of the Great Lakes from Indian peoples and to make it a part of the expanding empire of the United States. Ted, did you want to add something there? I, I wonder if, um, and this is a question maybe perhaps for you, John, I'm thinking here, you mentioned, you know, you have an uptick in missionary activity at this time. You know, the Jesuits had been in, in the region in the 17th and 18th centuries, but they really didn't make many converts. Uh, they were better at writing stories back to Europe about what was life was yeah. like here than they were actually changing anybody's uh, spiritual direction. But that seems to change in the period after the War of 1812, in that uh, the military option, you know, save for Black Hawk, the military option really seems to be off the table from the perspective of, of many Native leaders. And there seems to be instead a way, could, could we use spiritual means as a way of bringing about this more permanent and harmonious relationship with newcomers? Is that something that, that you see happening with the Potawatomi at this time? Absolutely. Uh, and it's a great point, Ted, is that, and as Andrew had prefaced our conversation, you know, we had aligned ourselves, many of the Potawatomi, with Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa uh, in the, uh, that rebellion against uh, the United States uh, incursion into our lands. We were fighting to retain our way of life, our value systems, our families, our homelands, and that did not turn out very well, right? And then uh, with Black Hawk, it, it seemed that there were many indications that military resistance against the tsunami of U.S. military forces, the tsunami of settler colonists flooding into the region, particularly, particularly after the opening of the Erie Canal, uh, that Native peoples were realizing that we're going to have to make accommodation. We're going to have to figure out a way of going along far enough that it makes sense for everybody. And that's embrace the spirituality, essentially Christianity, I think was a part of that, that strategy of what Gerald Bisner would call survivance, that idea of, well, if that if that's what it takes, for, you know, we've always been open to new ideas about religion. We've always had prophets. This may be a new prophecy uh, that we're willing to embrace, and we can embrace it. And so there were struggles. Um, Ted, you're absolutely right. The Jesuits didn't have much of an impact earlier when they first came, uh, other than recording our lifeways uh, and their interactions with us. But by the time the United States in the early 19th century is in the Chicago region, the Great Lakes region, there's missionaries. I can speak particularly about the Pokagon Potawatomi experience of Isaac McCoy, the Baptist missionary who tries to ex expend a lot of effort trying to convert Potawatomi youth to Christianity and it's with uh, not, not great results, but not, not without some results. However, Isaac McCoy 
I think, loses uh, his audience with the Potawatomi when he begins promoting removal, uh, that uh, he wants the Potawatomi to go west as a part of the political reality, uh, you know, that is uh, forming in the United States is that Indians, certainly after the Black Hawk War, after the passage of the Indian Removal Act in 1830, Indians are going to have to move west of the Mississippi. And Isaac McCoy, the Baptist missionary, is in favor of that and supports that. Many of the Potawatomi were not enthused about that at all. They did not want to leave their homelands. And so many of them end up rejecting, not all of them, but many of them end up rejecting Isaac McCoy's Baptist Christian message and look elsewhere. And Leopold Pokagon, for instance, looks to the Catholic Church for an alternative Christian religion that will support them staying in their homeland. And so he uh, successfully convinced, he converts himself, his family converts to Catholicism, and much of the rest of the community converts to Catholicism. And that is part of the story of why some of the Potawatomi are not removed. Uh, I wonder, Chad. I'm sorry. Can I? Can I just? Mm-hmm. Can I just interrupt? Sure. Uh, um, for the for the non-professional historians here, you've both of you, John and Ted, have mentioned Black Hawk several times. Can you just briefly tell our listeners who Black Hawk was and why he's important? Go ahead, Ted. Uh, Black Hawk was a Sauk Fox uh, native leader, very much uh, uh, a traditionalist, a patriot of the traditions of his tribe. Uh, he also had fought uh, very effectively in alliance with the British during the War of 1812. And he seems to have nursed in the period after the war the belief that the British were still potential military allies. And he also, as a Sauk Fox leader, very much felt the betrayal by the United States government of a treaty that had allegedly been made in 1804, in which the Sauk Fox people who lived in Northwest Illinois had allegedly ceded their lands. And the majority of the people just didn't accept that. And uh, so Black Hawk ran afoul of the United States government in 1832, when he led a group of his people, including many women and children, across the Mississippi River from Iowa back into Illinois, where they had formerly lived, where they had cornfields that still bore corn from the past. And they thought, maybe we'll just come here for a little while and we'll talk to people, we'll harvest our corn. And instead, they ran into a group of militia who panicked, fighting began, and This led to the last of the Indian Wars in the Northwest region called the Black Hawk War. And the United States government sent a large number of troops here. Militia were organized. Uh, Young Abraham Lincoln was a militia captain in the war. But it was really a wretched endeavor in which Black Hawks basically spending the time of the war trying to retreat from the Americans across the state of Wisconsin. Several battles are fought and and finally really a massacre of his people uh, on the banks of the Mississippi River kind of ends the war. But what's really significant from the point of view of Chicago with the Black Hawk War is that, one, it's an exclamation point for future white settlement. It says, from now on, the Indians aren't going to be a problem. Uh, and so it really leads to a great, more, a great deal of new settlement coming in. The second thing that's important is that the Potawatomi, who are the major group in the area, uh, along with some Adawa and Ojibwa, uh, they take no part in this conflict. Uh, they perceive it for what it is, is a pathetic lost cause. And so they actually play a role in warning and protecting some of the early settlers. So when the war ends, they have an expectation that they should actually be rewarded for their friendship. And instead, what occurs 
just a year after the war is over, is the United States comes to impose a treaty of exile upon the native people. I think that's kind of sums it up. So, so as it were, all native people were so-called punished for the Blackhawks' transgressions. Is that a fair way to describe it, John? Yeah, I think it's uh, maybe a mix of painting with a broad brush of all Indians are not to be trusted, and plus, oh, this is a great excuse to justify the removal of all Indians out of the area. And and John, uh, Ted, in his brief history of the, the Black Hawk War there, mentioned um, how, how the Potawatomi reacted to this. Is this, this also what, what you learned, your experience from, from your personal history? Is this how, how this was described to you? Yeah, um, and, and certainly what I've read, too. So, yeah, it's uh, sort of uh, with uh, Black Hawk and sort of an intertribal conflict between Keokuk and uh, uh, Black Hawk that, uh, uh, you know, Keokuk, the accommodator, the assimilationist, the treaty signer versus Black Hawk, the traditionalist, and uh, the patriot, as Ted, I think, correctly uh, articulated, you know, that becomes an intertribal or intratribal, I'm sorry, intratribal conflict. And the Potawatomi at this point don't see much of a value in it. And I think also they've now at this point uh, taken on the strategy of accommodation. And uh, so they're not going to join in uh, what they see as a fruitless endeavor and I think, as Ted correctly points out, I think perhaps they were also expecting that if they sided with the Americans, with the uh, settlers, that they would be rewarded. And there's a long history of across North America of indigenous peoples aligning themselves with the uh, Americans, expecting to be certainly, if not rewarded, not punished. Uh, but nonetheless, they get punished anyway, along with whomever else happens to be uh, indigenous. Well, one thing I've been learning in, in, by listening to, to you and Ted and also in the last episode is, is maybe I had an assumption, I don't even know where it's from, that there was always s- sympathy among tribes for their resistance but what I've learned is there was a wide variety of different approaches to this that changed over time. Sometimes one tribe would be sympathetic to a certain course of action and the others wouldn't. There was no, not necessarily ever a totally unified position that lasted for long periods of time among all of the different tribes. They all had also their own interests and their own way of viewing the world. And here we see this in the Black Hawk War that maybe some there was maybe some sympathy but there was no uh, no desire to actually help the blackhawks and in, in their lost cause sure and and we see this even with tecumseh uh that not all of the potawatomi leaders were enthused about that the older more traditional leaders that felt like they had earned their way to their positions of influence and power were being disrupted by this upstart who was really engaging with the young generation of warriors that wanted to fight back. And that was uh, uh, threatening to the old school, some of the old school Potawatomi leaders who thought that, well, we just need to go along to get along kind of thing. So it was, you're absolutely right, Andrew, that it was never monolithic between tribes or even within tribes. I think uh, what John's getting at is a better understanding of Native American political arrangements. The tribe was a, a construct of the United States that reflected certain territorial similarities, language and cultural similarities, but not political relationships. Instead, the peoples of the Great Lakes region uh, the only political basis might be the band, 
each band would have their own leaders and, and their own needs. But even within a band, if an individual didn't like what the band leader was doing, they could pursue their own actions. Uh, there was no you know, system of coercion. So yeah, John's right that even the Shawnee, you know, uh, Tecumseh and Tetsuko Watawa were, uh, were Shawnee. Uh, the majority of the Shawnee didn't agree with Tecumseh. And uh, in the War of 1812, uh, you had one band of Adawa uh, siding with the Americans and another band of Adawa going ahead and attacking the Americans. These groups would make their own decisions. And that's really what's so important when we get to something like the Treaty of Chicago in 1833. We can see that, that there are different approaches being pursued by the Potawatomi in these negotiations. Do we want to discuss now the uh, Treaty of Chicago of 1833? John? Sure. Well, in uh, September of uh, 1833, the United States uh, government sent out its uh, treaty agents and uh, advised the Potawatomi to gather at Chicago for essentially the last Great Land Session treaties of the Great Lakes region. I have students that ask me sometimes, well, why would the Potawatomi go if they don't want to cede lands? Why do they even bother going? And as best I can explain it is that it's conveyed by the United States government that you don't really have much choice. We're going to do a treaty. You can either participate it and get your best deal uh, that you think is uh, for you and your people, or we'll go ahead and, and get a treaty. Somebody will sign it, and you'll all be held to the terms of it. So it's in your own self-interest to come and negotiate. And so the Potawatomi uh, from... Wisconsin, from Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, gathered in Chicago for this last treaty. And it took place over the course of uh, uh, several days, unfortunately, um, but as a part of the strategy of the United States government, lots of alcohol was brought in. And uh, so there's the difficulties in the treaty making process that the translators of the treaties were not always very accurate. Also, uh, what was written was not oftentimes what was orally uh, relayed between the parties. And in the end, essentially, all the Potawatomi, or almost all the Potawatomi, end up ceding that last area of uh, lands to the United States government. And that clears a path for their removal then that uh, it can, they are no longer have a right to be here. And so it's only a matter of time before they're going to be removed. The exception to that is uh, Leopold Pokagan and what was being called the Catholic Potawatomi or the St. Joseph River Potawatomi, but the government soon started calling them Pokagan's Band of Potawatomi, which got shortened to the Pokagan Band of Potawatomi. We didn't name our tribes after people, but the gov U.S. government did. Anyway, Leopold Pokagan, uh, the day following the treaty negotiations, the last day, negotiates an exception based upon the religious uh, uh, status of the Pokagan Potawatomi that they are exempt from removal because of this prior conversion to Catholicism. And over the next, probably by what, uh, Ted, 1838, 1839, the rest of the Potawatomi, they either flee north to Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, they flee to Canada uh, or return home to Canada. Some of the Potawatomi flee south uh, with the Kickapoo to Mexico, where they are still there today. And the rest of the Potawatomi essentially, I suspect, are in disbelief that they're actually going to be removed from their ancestral homes, that anybody would be uh, 
that the United States government would engage in this uh, this kind of uh, genocide, this cultural genocide, this kind of uh, ethnic cleansing. And so, but sure enough, uh, the United States government did, and it culminates in what Paduami people call the Trail of Death. Uh, it goes from, uh, captures uh, Menominee's uh, tribe in um, near Plymouth, Indiana, Twin Lakes, uh, gathers them up, sweeps them along through northern Illinois, gathering up uh, as many Potawatomi peoples as possible, and marches them out to first Iowa and then later Kansas. And so uh, after, uh, after 1838 or so, uh, only the Pokagon Potawatomi are left in the Great Lakes region, except, well, I should say, except for in northern Wisconsin. I just want to underline this for for my own sense of understanding the timeline here. So what we're saying here is in 1838, the last substantial groupings of any types of Native American people have been expelled. Is that correct? Yes. Except for the Pokagon tribe. And, and where is the Pokagon tribe uh, geographically located in 1838? Are they spread around or is it a specific sort of settlement? It's a specific sort of settlement. Uh, there were basically in southwest Michigan and northwest Indiana, right near what's now the Indiana-Michigan uh, state line along the St. Joseph River. And there's probably, these are the stories I've been told, is that there are probably 10 or 12 villages along that, that river uh, of Potawatomi people. And as Ted mentioned, each village had its own leader. You know, villages cooperated, intermarried, you know, related to each other by language and life and history, beliefs. But uh, each one was independent. But after rumblings of removal, by 1838, these villages are all coalescing into one larger village, Pokagon's village. And that was one way to avoid removal. When the military or the bounty hunters came and said, you're not supposed to be here, you're Indian, people quickly uh, caught on to the fact that, oh, I'm from Pokagon's village. Oh, okay, well, that's a pass. Uh, okay, go back home, get, get over there. And the land that uh, uh, in, in various uh, uh, treaty signings, Leopold Pokagon had been given uh, sections of land for himself. What leaders were expected to do, they didn't always do this, but what I think they were expected to do was use those lands for the benefit of their people not for themselves. And uh, although, you know, it was also sort of uh, a way of convincing some leaders that, oh, well, this is not so good for my people, but this is a great deal for me. So they would sign too, unfortunately. But Leopold Pokagon uh, took the lands that he had been given in Indiana and sold them and used the monies from those lands to purchase land up in near Dowagic, Michigan, Sister Lakes area, which is the epicenter of uh, where the Pokagon Potawatomi are now. They were intended to be removed up to near Petoskey, up by the Odawa and the Ojibwe, uh, but uh, Leopold Pokagon did not want that to happen, uh, that I uh, thought that one, that we should stay in our homelands and two, that we're going to, if we live with other people that are more numerous than us, we'll just lose our own Potawatomi, Anishinaabe identity. And so they resisted that removal successfully. And so the Pokagon Potawatomi remain to this day with a service area that includes four counties in southwest Michigan and six counties in northwest Indiana. Thank you. Ted, you wanted to 
add some things? One of the things that John touched on there is, you know, the role of who's signing these treaties and the one of the ways in which the United States government would try to compensate leaders is a way to perhaps bring leaders to the point where they'll agree to a session was to give them grants of land. And probably the two most controversial figures in the negotiation of the 1833 Treaty of Chicago uh, were Alexander Robinson and Billy Caldwell. Both of these were Métis individuals. Caldwell was part Mohawk and part uh, British. And Robinson was part Odawa and uh, part British. But they were each named uh, in government documents as formerly being Potawatomi chiefs. And as John explained earlier, this was in part because they had married Potawatomi women and were then regarded by Potawatomi as members of the tribe. The fact that they were called chiefs is unsure, it's unclear as to who actually was behind that, but certainly the United States government was. But in negotiating this final removal or final session treaty in the Chicago, Northern Illinois region, each of them received very large grants of land and very generous payments, like $5,000 cash each, which in the uh, early 19th century is a fortune, as well as annuities of three, $400 a year coming from the government. And so I, I was interested in what John said there. You know, Billy Caldwell gets a big chunk of land on the North Branch of the Chicago River. Alexander Robinson gets a big chunk on the Des Plaines River. And you wonder, did Native people think, well, okay, <laughs> our chief's going to be there, and so we can be there too. And that's not at all, of course, what happens. What does happen? They are all sent west uh, to the Council Bluffs area of Iowa. Billy Caldwell actually goes with them and lives in, and dies there. But Alexander Robinson in 1835 leads a big group of Potawatomi there. And a year or so later, he's back living as a gentleman farmer on the Des Plaines River. And so between the alcohol that was pushed on the tribes by all the traders who descended on the treaty grounds, and then the payments to these Métis, quote unquote, chiefs, the whole Treaty of 1833 has a very bad aroma uh, about it. John, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Those are great points, Ted, uh, that you made. Thank you for that. I also wanted to add that uh, across North America, this whole treaty making and land session thing is quite an issue because since the Marshall Trilogy, this series of United States Supreme Court decisions uh, of the 1830s, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that we didn't own the land. So we weren't getting compensated for the land. We were getting compensated for our occupancy of the land. We only held Indian title because we had not gridded out the continent. We had not created little lots. We had not fenced in our properties. Uh, it wasn't the way the Americans thought that civilized people owned land. And so even with the compensations, you know, we've never been compensated for the land, for our ownership of the land, our communal ownership of the land. We've only been compensated for our occupancy. And uh, yeah, absolutely. There's, uh, there's a phrase of uh, chiefs that uh, take care of themselves over their people and they're called treaty chiefs, and it's not meant as a compliment. So, yeah, these were treaty chiefs uh, around Chicago that were not serving their communities well, and whether they were even in a position of authority that, that they were assigned is questionable, absolutely. Um, we, we don't have a, a lot of time to continue the story today, but, but maybe we just want to get up to the Civil War and then afterwards and briefly tell the story 
Native Americans of the Chicagoland area through that period, although now it seems like that there is very little history after 1838, I suppose, of, of different tribes in the Chicagoland area. But I'll just note from one of my notes here is that, in fact, Chicago, once it became fully, as it were, Americanized, um, also became a headquarters for then uh, further Western expansion and also became a headquarters for further repression of Indians west of the Mississippi. So maybe we can just end by talking a little bit about that history. Ted or John, do you want to begin? Well, let me just note that American Indians seem to vanish from the story of Chicago. And that's part of a, of a process that takes place across the whole country of purposefully erasing Native connections. So there probably were Native people living in Chicago, but uh, they are being overlooked, uh, ignored. And their continuing connections in the region, particularly through the Pokagon Band, is seen as somehow not mattering to white people. It's true that uh, in the 1870s, uh, the United States Army headquarters uh, for for fighting the Plains Indians and vanquishing them from their homelands uh, was in Chicago. General Philip Sheridan uh, was based here. And that leads to basically the, the end of the Indian Wars uh, in the early 1880s. At the very same time, the United States government's beginning a policy of destroying American Indian culture, uh, that the way to save the Indian was to make him an American, quote unquote, <laughs> uh, and uh, to have him lose his culture. And so this is where the boarding school programs begin in 1879 with the creation of the Carlisle Indian School, the creator of which, uh, Richard Henry Pratt, was famous for saying that the purpose of his school was to kill the Indian to save the man. And these are schools that were basically teaching European vocational skills to Indians so they could occupy a lower rung on American society, learn English, and be Christian. So it's a really, it's the darkest time in American Indian history from uh, the late 1870s until the early 20th century, uh, a period of uh, demographic decline and a really war on Indian culture by the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there were, you know, the the Potawatomi that were uh, walked out to Iowa, uh, later removed to Kansas, Billy Caldwell's band later um, embraced the name of Prairie Band of Potawatomi, are there still today, Mayetta, Kansas, on a reservation. That tribe divides uh, through conflict and lack of consensus, and the citizen band then moved down to Oklahoma for allotments and citizenship. So that's what happens there. There are Indians uh, that keep coming back from Kansas, coming back to the Great Lakes region, particularly in Michigan, close to Pokagon, uh, Potawatomi, and Dwajak, Michigan but other areas too. So we have tribes that were removed but reestablished themselves, the Nottawasippi Band of Potawatomi, who are federally recognized now near Three Rivers, and the Machabishiwish, the Gun Lake Band near Allegan, Michigan. Basically, most of those people are were removed and came back. Uh, and so there was that resistance by foot to removal. And uh, so it uh, becomes a uh, difficult period. My great-grandmother was a, uh, enrolled in the Mount Pleasant, Michigan uh, Indian Industrial Training School and survived that. We don't have a lot of stories about that, primarily because I suspect 
it was so unpleasant she didn't talk about it. You know, there were other boarding schools up in residential boarding schools in Wisconsin, Toma, for instance, that, uh, you know, were places, as Ted said, designed to destroy us as Indian people. So we've uh, survived that. Simon Pokagan, I'll, I'll mention this as sort of a, a fluorescence of uh, fireworks going off in 1893, speaks at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago on Chicago Day. He had first been denied access to the Columbian Exposition. They only wanted exotic Indians on the midway, you know, strange uh, savages in their uh, rudimentary uh, ways of living, or as uh, an example of a uh, classroom of an Indian boarding school. Or the third alternative was next to the uh, Columbian Exposition was Buffalo Bill's Wild West, uh, his uh, outdoor extravaganza that had this very American exceptionalism, a manifest destiny narrative of the taking, the winning of uh, North America. Simon Pokagan stood up to that and wrote a book on birch bark, first titled Red Man's Rebuke, later titled Red Man's Greeting, in which he passed out, sold, uh, distributed, where he writes in it that he had no reason to celebrate. You know, it was ironic that while everyone was gathered at the White City to celebrate supposedly 500 years of progress, did anyone realize at whose expense, at whose sacrifice, was this possible? It was through the sacrifice of the indigenous peoples of North America. It was through the sacrifice of the Indian peoples of the Chicago area that the white city was possible. And he was invited then on Chicago Day to speak. He spoke before a very large crowd of people and then was uh, the honored guest for the day. He uh, watched a lacrosse game, was on a parade, uh, sat and waved on a float, uh, and would later on uh, author probably the second novel in the Western sense of a uh, of a book, Ogma Kwe Midigwaki, Queen of the Woods. And uh, so uh, he was a bit of a celebrity for his time. And then while he was always sort of an ambivalent leader and maybe a bit too self-promoting among the Pokagon Potawatomi, Pokagon Potawatomi never forgot about Chicago. We uh, continued to see what was going on in Chicago. Uh, we had legal arguments that we'd never ceded the lakefront of Chicago since it was Phil. We'd never ceded the lake, never ceded the lake bed. So if you put Phil in the lake, you're putting it on our land, our unceded territory. So in 1914, the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi uh, sue for the Chicago lakefront. My uh, grandmother and my great-grandmother were plaintiffs in that suit, along with practically every other member of the tribe. And uh, so we sued and took that case all the way to the United States Supreme Court, suing the city of Chicago the Parks District, the Illinois uh, Central Railroad, etc., And uh, not surprising, as you might guess, since I'm sitting here in this rather dingy office, we didn't win, um, but we tried, right? And uh, we still consider it unceded territory uh, of the Potawatomi. And uh, so, so we kept fighting. I wrote a book called Imprints, the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi in the city of Chicago that outlines our constant connections to the city of Chicago and that we've never given those connections up and we maintain those connections to this day, for which I'm very proud. I was just going to say, I was always taught that Chicago is a part of our homeland. It's where we walk on the bones of our ancestors and we say that with pride because what that means is that we've been here for so long that there's nowhere 
that you can walk. There hasn't been a Potawatomi person before you. I can't think of any better words to end this episode. John, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Ted, thank you as well. Pleasure to be here. And thanks everyone for listening. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.